to all of you online. We're so grateful you're there. We miss you here. And a few people here this morning, so welcome to all of you as well. All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. We're picking it up in verse 20, going all the way to the end of chapter 9 this morning. Wonderful little section here, uh, significant and important for us. We're going to talk about the rainbow. In case you're wondering what that means, we'll talk about that this morning. So picking it up in Genesis chapter 8 this morning, beginning in verse 20, we'll be reading down a few verses and then um, we're not going to read all 29 of chapter 9 together because it would take a while to do that. So chapter 8, verse 20, the word of God says, Then Noah built an altar <clears throat> to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea they are given into your hand every moving thing that lives shall be food for you I have given you all things even as the green herbs but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood Lord thank you this morning for your word and for this amazing passage and as we continue to read Lord we read of your covenant with Noah and that covenant of grace where you say that you would never again destroy the earth by a flood. And so we are grateful for that. And you gave that rainbow as a sign. And so, Lord, as we talk about that, consider these things this morning. May you minister to us and fill us up and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So as we kind of backtrack a bit, since last week we did um, a message on Pentecost. Uh, last time we met in chapter 7 and 8, we talked about the flood. We talked about Noah's preparation for the flood that began in chapter 6 as God began to speak to him about that. And as we consider that back in chapter 6 verse 22, we saw a phrase that was repeated a number of times. Uh, which said, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. And then in chapter 7, verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 16, and those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, that is Noah, and the Lord shut him in. So Noah went out um, in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 18, Again, so Noah went out and his sons and wives and his, uh, his wife and his son's wives with him. So we see this kind of repeated uh, characterization of Noah as a man who loved God and who loved to obey God's word. And so we've talked about that, but we wanted to sort of pick that up here this morning as we continue with uh, Noah coming out of the ark. And remember now we're at a place where the flood has happened. 
where the earth has been decimated, where all of humanity for a probably close to 1,500 years had been born and grown. We saw the family tree beginning with Adam all the way down uh, through Seth up to Noah's time. We saw that the inclination of man's heart was only evil continually. And it was so bad, it was so evil. And in some respects, I'm sort of glad that God didn't tell us all of the, 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 the dirty details, so to speak, of everything that happened because... It was so bad that it had caused God to reach the point where he had to say, I have to start over. We have to hit reset. We need to wipe out humanity because humanity has become so corrupt. And we talked about the Nephilim and the potential intermarrying of fallen angels with uh, mankind. Uh, so if you're you know, wondering about that, you can go back and listen to that study in chapter 6. And so... Think crazy things were happening on the earth. And, you know, I think every time I've ever heard Genesis taught or I've heard these passages read, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, every time I've heard it, every single pastor has said, wow, and don't these match up with where we are today? And I think we can say that with full confidence today, <clears throat> that we live in an incredibly crazy time, don't we? with what's happening with violence in our society, um, with the protests, with uh, COVID, with unrest going around, on around the world that normally goes on that we just aren't hearing about because there's other headlines that are sort of taking precedent over those things. You know, and these are times in our world when, you know, we become focused on other things that uh, other groups, other, um, you know, terror groups, those kinds of things, they see opportunities. Because, hey, we're, we're preoccupied with things that are important to us. And so they, in the background, continue to do their evil. And so these, these things are happening. And even Jesus said, you know, we talked about this as well, as he was talking to Matthew 24 about the preparation for the coming of the end of the age. And he said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be just prior to Jesus returning. And so... These are horrible things. These are serious things that caused God, it provoked God to come to the place of bringing a flood to judge the earth for its sin. And so one thing we need to keep in mind while we are reviewing the grace and the love and the mercy of God, and certainly in the middle of chapter 9, we're going to have a heavy dose of God's grace, and we're so thankful for that. But God's grace comes in the face of sin, doesn't it? And we need to remember sin. We need to remember that what provoked God to judgment and wrath was the sin of mankind. And let us not forget while we are a people of grace and we sit under the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ today and all of the promises of God that we have from the Old Testament to the New, uh, Paul said in his writing in 1 Corinthians, in him are yes and amen. We're grateful for that. We rejoice in that. But let us not forget the holiness of God, the wrath of God upon the sinful and the unbelieving world. And that's what brought God to that place where he had to judge the earth. And then we saw a picture of God's grace last week as we looked at um, the flood had come and Noah and his family 
was in the ark for a period of time and we looked at a couple of little charts but here's one here that just sort of lays out the timeline of all of the the days that Noah and his family spent in the ark and we added all those up and it was 377 days so a little over a year that Noah and his family were on the ark and so by the end of that time you know we read uh, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 which spoke to us of everything that Noah did. And it said, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. So remember, God had said to Noah, A flood is coming, and I'm going to judge the earth, and I, and I want you to build an ark. Remember the incredible amount of faith it took for Noah to act in obedience upon something that God said. Noah was divinely warned of things not yet seen. I mean, we, we believe, we don't know 100% for fact, but that Noah built this ark probably somewhere well inland where there was no sea. And so Noah doing these things, being obedient to God, being warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. And we know that Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So God had communicated something to Noah. Noah got the message. And Noah was a preacher of right, righteousness and he was warned. He was moved with godly fear and he prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which um, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So that's the writer of Hebrews looking back with divine insight to what happened in and through the life of Noah. So now in chapter 8 verse 20 as we pick up our story today, we pick up the time where, let me just go back here. I don't want to leave that up here the whole time. We pick up the time where Noah is now exiting the ark. And so he sent out the raven. He sent out the dove. The dove finally came back with an olive branch or an olive leaf in its mouth. And then, of course, the dove did not return. And so now God told Noah to leave the ark and he began to give him instruction. So in chapter 8, verse 20, where we pick it up, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So back when Noah was taking on the ark, remember he took uh, two of every kind, and then of the clean animals it was said that he took multiples, uh, seven of every kind of those. And we know that that was God looking forward to the time when Noah would then exit the ark and would provide a worship sacrifice. So whenever we see in the scriptures someone building an altar or someone is coming to an altar, we automatically know that they are doing something as an act of worship. And maybe today we should do the same thing. I'm just making, throwing that out there as a suggestion because you know when we come to worship, we come to worship the Lord here as we gather together or perhaps as you worship a, alone in your own home and have your devotional time with the Lord. You know, I think there was something about building an altar and we see this many times throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. Think about that. Now, let's say you're going to build some kind of an altar, uh, not as an idol, of course, but as a memorial to the Lord. And you're going to kind of make that your place of worship. Now you have to think about it. What kind of altar do I want to build? 
I have to get materials for this. How am I going to do it in such a way that honors God and that is pleasing to him? And then what will I offer as a sacrifice if I were going to actually do that, make some kind of sacrifice unto the Lord? And as you think about the preparations for that and what would have to be in your heart, just like anything we do as a project, we have to think, we have to pray, we have to plan. And Noah probably had been thinking about this for a while. He certainly had enough time in the ark to do so. And so he built an altar to the Lord and he took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now God had just cleansed the earth, hadn't he? And we think of water washing, we think of cleansing, but this was a purging of all sin. It was a purging of the life of every human being and the life of every animal that was outside of that ark. And so as Noah now enters this new world, he is in a sense like another Adam as this is happening. As he comes out of this ark, I believe he sees an importance in worship, in surrender, in atonement. Because I believe Noah knows, and as we will see as we get to the end of chapter 9, that he and his family are still sinful, fallen people. They are not sinless people like Adam and Eve when they were originally created. Sin has now entered the world. And so he makes this sacrifice, this worship, this surrender, this atonement. And as the worship sacrifice, as the worship offering is offered, it's burnt. It's incinerated. And in the incineration, there is a celebration. And in the celebration, there are ashes. And we know that God takes ashes and makes beautiful things out of ashes, doesn't he? And so this offering, this sacrifice, this worship. And Noah came and he did the first thing first. He could have come out and surveyed the land and said, okay, we need to get busy building a house. We need to get busy doing this or that. We've got a lot of work to do. But instead he said, no, the first thing, the most important thing is worship. It's surrender. It's celebration. It's offering ourselves to God. It's sanctifying ourselves before the Lord. It's glorifying God. And I think Noah had a real sense of God's holiness, having seen what God just did. He had more than a year to think about what had happened. And the Lord smelled, in verse 21, a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. So God here now speaking to Noah. Sorry, I'm a slide ahead of myself here. And he says three times, never again, never again, never again. The Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Now when we, th we read these things about God, we see that God is sort of condescending to us. He's describing himself as an eternal being, He's, you know, God, Jesus tells us God is spirit and those who worship him must do so in spirit and truth. When God allows himself to be described to us in the form of a human being, he's really condescending or lowering himself to us so that we can understand something about him. 
In the biblical speak, this would be an anthropomorphism, which is taking the characteristics or the qualities of created human beings and God expressing himself to us in these terms. So it says, the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. So the Lord saying never again, never again, never again in uh, several of these verses. So he's beginning to lay the foundation, the groundwork for the covenant that he's going to express to Noah in chapter 9. And he is bringing through his word here, through this declaration, that he would never curse the ground, that he would never uh, destroy the earth again through a flood. Notice what he says here. In the face of that, he says, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. So God's grace right here again, he's saying, I know that sin's still here. I know that you're still an evil people, even though I've cleansed the earth and purged it. And I'm starting fresh with eight people who worship me. I already know where this is going. I already know that you're going to fall. I already know because I see everything of what's going to happen in your relationship and in your walk with me and with your fellow human beings. And God, as he continues to emphasize the never again will I ever do these things, in verse 22 he says, and this is the duration of how long his promise is good, while the earth remains. Now if we've read to the end of the book, the book of Revelation, it remains until the very end when God finally sets up a new kingdom. So while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. This is the first time God has used any of these terms right here. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night, of course, he used in uh, chapter 1. But he, God is saying the seasons will come and go, the earth will rotate, uh, the days will come, the seasons will come. These things will continue until God sums all things up in Christ. And in chapter 9, verse 1, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same thing he said to Noah, remember? Noah, to Adam at the beginning. And then again to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And then in verse 2 of chapter 9, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air and on all that move on the earth and on all of the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. So once again, confirming to Noah what he confirmed to Adam, that you are to rule and to reign over all of creation. And all of creation I've given, in a sense, to serve you as man. And I've made you... Uh, the one who should take care of the created earth. And then every moving thing, verse 3, that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things even as the green herbs. And so it would seem here that God is opening up the palate just a little bit and he's now saying, you know, up till now you've had plenty of good things to eat but I'm going to give you something even better. So all of you this morning who are not vegetarians or vegans can rejoice that God said, 
you can eat meat. Anybody have an amen for that this morning? All right, just a couple of people. All right. So God sanctions eating meat. It's in the Bible. And if you're a vegan, that's okay. We, we love you. It's a, and, you know, many people, of course, are for health reasons. But God does sanction this here. And, of course, if you were an animal, wouldn't you be afraid? And God, of course, said here that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air. So it would seem here that God has put even within the animal kingdom a new fear, a new dread, and that they now know, uh, you know, in the, in the world with Adam, when everything was created and Adam named everything, there was sort of a peace and a harmony between man and nature. But now sin has entered the world. And we've just gone through this horrific cleansing because of how evil man had become. And I think it's probably safe to assume, although it's not written in the text, perhaps man had even begun to misuse and abuse animals and, and do things that certainly were not in the will or the heart of God. And now God is now saying, you know, the animals are now here to serve you as a food source as well. So he's put within the, the hearts and the minds of animals, you know, a fear knowing who the master is and the master is man. But you shall not eat, verse 4, uh, the flesh with its life, that is its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now on the animal kingdom side of the world, We've all probably watched National Geographic or the Animal Channel or something like that. And we've seen how, you know, there's sort of a hierarchy there. And there are certain animals that are predators. And we've probably seen those videos of how they go out and they, they find their prey and they kill them and they eat them. And of course, when that happens, of course, they're eating the raw flesh of the animal that's being killed. And God is setting a distinction in place between man and animal here. And he's saying, you as mankind are to be more civilized. You are not to treat animals or eat animals in the same way other animals eat animals because you're not an animal. And so he says, if you eat an animal, it should be without the blood. The blood should be drained. And God always looked at blood, whether it was the blood of an animal or the blood of a man, as sacred unto God. And he says, for life is in the blood. And so this is something that God has set up as sacred. And he said, you need to honor those boundaries. And so he just lays out these things for us. And in a sense, he's sort of giving us a little pre-law here. Because by the time we get to the law, God lays these things out very clearly about how animals should be taken care of in terms of dressing them and those kinds of things. But then he goes on a little bit further and he says, with respect to man killing man for where there's murder or something where the life of a man where his blood is shed or her blood is shed. He says, in that situation, because you are made in the image of God, life will be required for life. And as God spells it out here in uh, verses 4 through 6, he spells out what we might call capital punishment, which is even further defined for us through the law as God gave it to Moses. And so he defines these boundaries. He defines things for us and he makes it very serious. He makes sure that we understand that these things are not to be taken lightly. 
Now as we consider these things, as I was thinking about this, this almost seems anticlimactic as we talk about it, doesn't it? Because doesn't almost every TV show gratify violence in some way? Is there anything, if you turn on any channel, just a normal cable channel, and you start channel surfing, you see violence. You see guns. This is all part of the entertainment, right? The entertainment that we entertain ourselves with, where it's just no problem. And we just see it all the time. Movies, we go and we pay money, big money at movies, to see these things. And this doesn't even affect us anymore. We're not even bothered by it. And of course, there's levels of violence that we've, you know, conditioned ourselves to accept. There's things where it's not all bloody and gory. And then there's those things on the other end of the spectrum where it's just horribly graphic. And it's like we don't even flinch. And these are things here that God said in his heart, in his mind, in his economy, that this is not something that should be taken lightly. And yet we view it as entertainment. In verse 7, God says, And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So he repeats that again. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Okay, finally I got to my slide. <laughs> And with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the earth with you, and of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. So let's look at this for a minute. I, uh, I don't do well with drawing and colors, but I like highlighting. So I had a little fun here. So notice here, um, verse 9, I establish my covenant with you. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. Verse 13, the sign of the covenant. Verse 15, I will remember my covenant. Verse 16, I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant. Verse 17, this is the sign of the covenant. This is the first time covenant is used uh, by God to really describe something significant to us. Now, covenant means an agreement. And this is God establishing a covenant. This is God reaching down to mankind, to you and me. God reaching down, knowing uh, all things, knowing the beginning from the end, being all-knowing, being omniscient. God knows we need a covenant because we're going to be in a situation very shortly after Noah comes off the ark where we need grace, where we need to be protected from ourselves, where we need our sin to be atoned for, our transgressions to be wiped away. And so God now says, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. So this covenant that God forms with Noah is a covenant that extends even to us because we ultimately are descendants of Noah. And so God establishes his covenant. Back in verse, chapter 6, verse 18, he says, but I will establish my covenant with you. So this is as God's 
beginning to tell Noah about the plan. So even back there, he alluded to it. That was the foreshadowing of it. But here was the realization of that covenant. Now, God formed covenants all throughout the Bible. With Adam, God had a covenant. Originally, his covenant with Adam, as he and Eve were in the garden, were they could roam in the garden that God had prepared for them. They could eat of uh, any tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they could walk with God during the cool of the day and enjoy his presence and enjoy this utopian, perfect earth, a world without sin. But then through the sin of mankind in chapters 2 and 3, through the sin of Adam and Eve, a new covenant had to be formed where God first killed animals and covered them, covered the shame of their nakedness with the skin of an animal. And then... Um, God had to put them out of the garden and he had to make a new agreement with them. So God had an original agreement or, or an original covenant, even though the word wasn't used, with Adam. And then he had to alter that covenant with him because of sin. Now with Adam, excuse me, with Noah, we find here that God is giving the sign of the rainbow in the sky, which we'll talk about in a moment. And then God further promised that judgment would not come again through a global flood. We need to take a moment here and just distinguish the fact that, yes, we, we know that floods happen today, don't they? We, these things have happened just recently in our history. And if we follow them around the world, there are terrible rainstorms. There are things that happen where floods come, people die, property is destroyed. We need to understand that God is talking about the judging of sin and that the flood God sent on the earth globally was to eradicate mankind and to eradicate sin. But seeing a flood that comes today is really just the, the fall of man. It's just a continuation of sin. So when God said, I would never, never again bring a flood of judgment, that's what he was talking about as opposed to the, the many localized floods that happen through weather systems and around our world today. So not to think that, you know, God is not faithful and doesn't keep his word. He has made a distinction. The, the flood that brings us uh, judgment against sin versus the floods that happen just from weather systems. Then later we see with Abraham, which we'll get to in a few weeks with Abraham uh, chapter 12, God formed a covenant with him, the sign of the circumcision and the promise that through him God would make him a great nation. Then later in the book of Deuteronomy, God meets with Moses, forms a covenant with him, gives him the law, institutes Sabbath worship, a time of rest, a time of honoring God, and then the blessing for obedience to the laws of God. And then later, of course, God formed a covenant with David in 2 Samuel where David's line would produce the Messiah and that from the offspring of David he would never uh, lack someone sitting on the throne of Israel. His throne would be established forever. It would begin with an earthly reign but it would culminate in a divine reign by the Messiah over the created world. And then of, of course when Jesus himself established the new covenant in the New Testament there at the Lord's table where he took the elements of bread and wine and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood for you. So God loves agreements. But in all of these agreements, these are ones that God originated. These are ones God said, I'm forming a covenant with you. 
You know, we have this saying we've said for a long time, God is the initiator, man is the responder. It's God who's always reaching out to us in his grace and mercy, just as he's doing here with Noah. Noah's walked out of the ark. The flood has just happened. Noah begins in worship, and now as, as uh, Noah's worship service has come to a close, God begins to sp speak to him, and he says, you know that covenant I spoke to you about back before you went into the ark? <clears throat> now it's time for us to set that up. I will establish this covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature. So not just with man, but with the created world, with the animal kingdom as well. And thus I establish my covenant with you. So again, the second time, never again uh, shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. How many times does God repeat himself here <clears throat> about this covenant? About the significance of this covenant? About the agreement that he's setting in place? He's made it very simple. But notice here he says the sign of the covenant is the rainbow and the clouds. You know, and God, man, he's so gracious with that, isn't he? Now I want to make sure we understand something this morning because we're in, a, we're in a month where the rainbow has been misappropriated to mean something else. Here's what it means. It means that God formed a covenant with Noah and he says because of his love, because of his grace, because of his mercy, he says, I will never again destroy the earth like that. Now we know that the wrath of a holy God against sinful man still exists. And, and God gave these covenants along the way as sort of stepping stones, if you will, to get to Jesus in the New Testament. And so God's saying here, I will begin dealing with man on the basis of grace. Grace is God giving to us something that we don't deserve. And the flip side of that coin is mercy, right? Where God withholds what we do deserve. So grace and mercy become the foundation. It becomes the covenant by which God deals with sinful man. And so God has intended that whenever you and I see a rainbow, even today, and as wonderful as it is, as spectacular as it is, it's to make us think of one thing and one thing only. God's love, God's grace, following judgment, because God loves people. God loves people. In essence, 
The rainbow is a foreshadowing of the gospel. Now, this is the first time we see a rainbow appear in Scripture. There are three times that rainbows appear in the Bible. So here in Genesis, we've just read all this uh, about the rainbow. So this is the first time that the rainbow appears and that God describes it. But then in the, the book of Ezekiel, God gives the prophet Ezekiel this amazing prophecy, this amazing vision in chapter 1. You should go read it, but here's a snippet from it. A voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings, and above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne. So he's seeing a picture of heaven. In appearance like a sapphire stone or on the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw as it were the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw as it were the appearance of fire with brightness all around. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. God gave Ezekiel this amazing prophetic vision. He took him into the throne room of heaven. And you're going to see in a moment with the next passage that essentially the vision that Ezekiel is seeing here is the, the vision that God gives to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 4. So God showing to Ezekiel that not only has God set the rainbow in the clouds, but God has a rainbow in heaven as well. And here it is. In Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. So this was John, the Apostle John. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne. In appearance like an emerald around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads and from the, the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So we have the rainbow that God gave to Noah. The promise of his grace and, God, and his mercy towards sin. And now we have the vision that God gave of the rainbow around the throne to Ezekiel. Which was a, a, an, a vision of what John saw here in chapter 4. And so here today... Uh, this picture of the rainbow that I got looks to me like it was taken through a filter... This is actually from my front porch about a year ago. Um, so sorry for the kind of cockeyed thing there. But um, you can see it's actually a double rainbow. And so we get to see rainbows all the time, don't we? Right? So whenever we see the rainbow, you ought to think of Genesis chapter 9, Ezekiel chapter 1, and Revelation chapter 4. And the rainbow means... God has relented in his judgment against sin and that he will show uh, love and grace and mercy towards sin and toward the sinner. 
And so whenever we see a rainbow, that's the picture. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that sin's okay. It doesn't mean that God likes sin or that he in some way approves of sin. It means that God knows that because we are sinful fallen people, that God must do something to acquiesce toward us because if he doesn't do that, there's going to be a problem. The problem is going to be we're going to get wiped out. Our sin will wipe us out. We need to remember what sin is before God. Sin is the violation of the holiness of God. The word sin, hamartia, means to miss the mark. And it doesn't matter if you miss the arc, a millimeter, the mark a millimeter, or if you miss it by a mile. In other words, it's not degrees and severities. Sin is sin before God. This is where so many people get it wrong. They think because this a person is, is doing a certain thing or involved in a certain sin or lifestyle, that that's way worse. Well, listen, think, sin offends God. And when we read sin in the lists in the New Testament, uh, everything's included there. Sexual sins, stealing, lying, cheating. Everything that is, has fallen short of the glory of God is judged as sin. And so God looks down from heaven. That's what the scripture just told us in chapter 9 of Genesis. And it says that God sees sin and God looks at the rainbow. That's what it said, right? God sees sin and God looks at the rainbow. Does that sound familiar? It should because when God sent the priest into the most holy place on Yom Kippur on the day of atonement, what happened? He had... The, the priest take the blood of a perfect lamb without blemish and he would sprinkle that blood of the lamb on top of the altar on the top of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, remember? Then God would look down from heaven and see the atoning blood of the innocent lamb and rather than seeing the sin of man and looking into the Ark and seeing the symbols of rebellion of the manna and the wilderness where God provided and, and man complained or the, the, the budded rod of Aaron where men re rebelled against the um, the authority of God or the broken law the Ten Commandments where, where man again rebelled against the very word of God instead God saw the blood and now we fast forward to the time of Christ we fast forward to the cross and on that day that Jesus was crucified from 12 noon till 3 p.m. when the skies were darkened and and you know the sun basically went behind the clouds and it became black what happened during that time? The wrath of God was poured out upon sin. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that he, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And what does God do? He looks down at the cross and he sees the blood of his son Christ. And if you will, the blood of Christ, the cross, is the rainbow for us. It's God looking at the cross and saying, I will not remember your sin. The rainbow points us to the cross. The rainbow points us to the grace and the love and the mercy of God. Now, in 1 Peter 4.10, Peter wrote these words. He was talking about the manifold grace of God. And the word manifold means various colors or variegated. So even... In the description in the New Testament of the manifold grace of God, you really have a description of the rainbow, the multicolored grace of God. 
Let's think about the bow, the rainbow, because God said, I will set a bow in the clouds. A bow is an instrument of war, but God has transformed it into a picture of his grace and faithfulness, a guarantee of peace. God could certainly turn the bow of judgment upon us because we've broken his law and deserve judgment, but he has turned the bow toward heaven, upward, and taken the punishment for us on himself. When Jesus died on the cross, it was the just one suffering for the unjust and the bearing of the suffering that rightly belonged to us. That's why the rainbow points upward. It points us to heaven. God said, I will remember my covenant. You see, God hasn't forgotten. He never forgets. But he's saying that every time a rainbow, think about this globally, every time it rains, every time there's some kind of a mist, you can take your, your garden hose on a sunny day and set it to a fine mist and you can create a rainbow, can't you? So if you need the grace of God, go out in your yard and have some fun and remind yourself of God's love toward you and toward me. Now in verse 18, we have a bit of a shift and we see what begins to happen in normal life after all of these things have taken place. God has established his covenant. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. So in this description here, uh, chapter 9, verses 18 through 21, as is so often the case, we have the due process of time. Uh, they came out of the ark. God's established his covenant. They begin to set up life. Noah becomes a farmer. Seasons go by. He plants a vineyard. And one day they finally come to the harvest of the vineyard and the grapes have been pressed into wine. And it says, he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And we find here one of the things that often is associated with drunkenness, which is nakedness. And here, Noah, with this amazing thing that's happened between him and God, having the grace of God, having the, the bow in the clouds, having the covenant that God has reached down to form with him, he's already slipped. He drank the wine and became drunk. He became uncovered in his tent. So here we are. We don't know exactly how long, it, you know, how, how many weeks or years have passed. But sin quickly re-enters the picture. And so Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, the scriptures aren't playing around with us. They mention these things for a reason. When we get next week into chapter 10, which is called the Table of the Nations, it's important that we know that Canaan was a descendant of Ham, and you're going to see in a moment that this becomes significant. So Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers. So apparently what happened is this. Noah's drunk in his tent. Ham apparently goes to check on him, and as he walks in, there's his father, buck naked, laying there, passed out from a drunken stupor. And when it says he saw the nakedness of his father, that word actually means to gaze upon. 
So it wasn't like he walked in and went, oh, and turned around and walked out. He stopped and looked. And the only thing we can, we can draw from that because of what happens next is the fact that he should have had a reaction of shame and turned away and went, oh my gosh, you know, I shouldn't have seen that. I'm so sorry. Instead, it indicates that he stopped and he looked. He looked at his father. And so he told his two brothers, but Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So what did they do? They acted honorably. And they said, this is a shameful thing that's happened to our father. Obviously, our father has sinned. Obviously, he's done something wrong. And so think about what they did. They made sure they didn't look. And they took a blanket or a covering and they walked backwards. They each kind of stood with the, the corner over their shoulders and they walked backwards. And when they got to the place where he was, they, you know, they covered him up. Now, what a picture of grace this is for us because doesn't it say throughout the scriptures that there is honor in, in the covering of another's shame, of another's nakedness. In fact, isn't there a verse in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 8 that says, and above all things have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins. So rather than walking in and seeing the nakedness of their father in the same way that their brother did, they covered the sin of their father. They, they tried to bring honor to the shame. They allowed love to cover the sin. So Noah awoke, verse 24, from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan. Not him, Canaan, his son. A servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Now we find here the first time that God now takes order and he starts to mess with it. Because later we'll see Jacob and Esau, right? Where God prophesies and says the, younger, the older shall serve the younger. And so God starts to take things that we see in order and he, he reorders things according to his purposes. And so here, uh, you know, Canaan wasn't the one who walked in and saw the shame of his father's nakedness, right? It was his father, Ham. But in this case, Canaan is the one who was cursed and whom God said would become a servant to the brothers. And we know as we, if you think forward, right, the land of Canaan, the land of conquest is looking forward to when God brought the children of Israel back and they had to go in and conquer Canaan. Remember the spies went in, they said there's giants in the land. Uh, so there's all that, right? We don't, we don't want to get into all that this morning. But he says, may God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah, verse 28, lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Now we're not going to put up a chart and look at all the, the people's timelines in terms of how long they lived. But suffice it to say that when you add up these days and you count them out, that it's extremely likely 
that Noah and Abraham knew each other. Because when you trace the genealogies and you add up the numbers, you find out that they overlap. And since from Noah and his descendants, God began to repatriate the earth, um, it's very, very likely that he and Abraham knew one another. So how cool is that just to think about the possibility as we come to Abraham in a few weeks that uh, from uh, one of his relatives, you know, whom, whom he knew, you know, he no doubt knew this story of what God did from Adam all the way down to Noah and then how God wiped out everything and then through Noah, you know, brought the grace and brought the reestablishing of men and women on the earth. And then the influence that that must have had on Abraham and how he thought about God. One of the messages we can take away today as we think about this certainly is grace. It's certainly how God loves us and how God himself reaches out and establishes with us the covenants of his love toward us. It tells us of the heart of God that he loves us far more than we can understand. And while God hates sin, God loves the sinner. There's a strong picture of that here in what we've looked at this morning. But there's also a picture here of Noah, who we can look at and say genuinely, Noah is a hero of the faith, right? But how quickly Noah fell. And we need to remember, folks, as we think about people, as we think about spiritual leaders, as we think of people that we look at and say are heroes of the faith, perhaps even, that, that men and women fall, that we're frail human beings. And while that's not an excuse for sin, that we shouldn't be devastated when a leader falls. Now, we should grieve for that person, obviously. But we shouldn't be surprised in the sense that we are all human beings. We are all humans with sinful flesh. How many of you this morning would want to take a marker and write on the wall the deepest, darkest, worst sin, right? Of your life, of your mind, of your heart. We wouldn't want to do that, right? And if we did that, we would all be appalled at one another, wouldn't we? We would be like, I'm all done with you. I'm out of here. But love covers a multitude of sins. God covers our sin by his grace. God covered the sin of mankind with the rainbow. He gave grace for Noah and for the new world, for a new beginning, for a new creation to go forward under the banner of the rainbow. God gave these other covenants as we briefly rehearsed and looking forward. You know, to Moses, to Abraham, to David, and even through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here we are today looking back on all of these covenants that God has established and listen, are we not the most blessed people on the face of the planet? And hasn't our Lord Jesus Christ set the example for us? And hasn't he given us a clear message? And hasn't he said to us, go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples, doing all these things as I've commanded you? And lo, I'm with you always, to the even, even to the end of the age. I mean, isn't the mission clear? Isn't the point of our lives to take and propagate the grace, the love, and the mercy of God to a lost, fallen, dying, and sinful world? Isn't that abundantly clear to us this morning as we consider the rainbow? As the rainbow points us toward heaven, as the rainbow points us down the annals of history to the cross, 
And as we today look at the cross of Jesus Christ and realize that we are the recipients of love and grace and mercy to such an extent that we've probably lost sight of how bad our sin truly is and how much of an offense it is before God. But as Paul said, shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin uh, continue to live in it? No, grace is not an excuse for sin. Grace is a reason to go forward in faith. Grace is a reason to walk forward after failure and not excuse our sin, but to walk forward in repentance and in faith and say, okay, I'm going to get up and keep going. I'm going to get up and do the things that God has put before me, even if I failed, even if I'm not gifted, even if I'm not the most talented person in the world. You see, none of that matters. All that matters is that you've believed in Christ and that he's come into your life and that you're now a new creation in him. And because of that, my life, your life, every life that believes in Christ has potential because of the presence of God and because of the grace of God. Amen? Let today be a new beginning in your life and in my life. Lord, thank you this morning for your grace, for your love, for your mercy. God, we are so thankful. We are blessed. And we just are, are grateful, Lord. Thank you for what you've taught us. Thank you for what you've shown us. Lord, may we walk forward today knowing that we are secure in Christ, knowing that we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, knowing that the rainbow is there for us and it points us toward heaven and it reminds us that you love us, Lord. Thank you. Lord, if there be any this morning listening who have never turned their heart toward you, then may this become a moment for them where they say, yes, Lord Jesus, I come to you. I want that grace and that mercy. I want to be forgiven. I want to be a new creation. And I turn from my old life and I turn toward you. Lord, come in, clean me up and set me on that right path. And for those of us this morning who just need to renew and reappropriate and remember. May the Lord be at work in our hearts and may we be filled to the fullness of God. May we be built up into the head, even into Christ. May we be conformed to the image of his son. May we be filled with his Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you this week. Let's worship as we go.